It's really finances that drive any business and a cash flow, profitability. And if you can have good operating cash flow coming in to take care of all of your costs, you're an extremely healthy company. You never have to worry about Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today I am welcoming Sarah Tamlarison. Sarah, it is so good to have you. I know you're coming from maybe sunny, decent weather, Houston. It's a little chilly here in Nashville. Thank you so much for hanging out. I would love if you would do uh, a little hello and introduction of yourself and your work so the audience can get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Sarah Tim Larison, as Ian said. I'm CEO and co-founder of Soto OG. We're actually a SaaS business where we've been backed by AWS and Google, and we use machine learning models to analyze a lot of operational cash flow data, which is sensor data and real-time data. And then we try to predict inefficiencies. We connect it to, hey, what's the impact on the cash flow? And we rank them. So we love what we do. It's a little geeky, but yeah, happy to discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. Every business cares about cash flow a whole lot, or if they don't, they should. And I'm curious, I know your background coming from, I guess it's Yes. And is it is the software particular to that industry or have you broadened that scope then to because I know when I read about this, the software, we're talking about enabling COOs right. to really understand the business. And then you're, of course, you're talking about sensors, which makes me think there's some type of uh, physical integration, you know, on the edge or something like that. So, yeah, I'd love to know the, the details of all of this because it, it's probably wildly complicated. Yeah, it is and it's not. No, it's not just in oil and gas. Actually, oil and gas is one of many in the heavy industrial space. Just as for okay. any entity that makes something and sells it the same thing. They use a lot of machines, but our software, we're software only. There's no hardware component to us to clarify that. People always think, are you installing something? Right. Yeah. And I know they talk a lot about the edge. So my background was I started in 2006 in oil and gas, but it's called a PLC, right? And PLCs have been around for a very long time. Okay. What does that stand for? Programmable logic controller. Right. Okay. Doing the fancy word is, oh, it's the edge. I don't even know if people still say that. I may be behind the times. I know there are sensors out in the field that measure actual things and give you data. And they're connected to a PLC. When I went to school, it feels so long ago now. In 2000s, my... Not as long as I did. My background's in engineering. And that is a lot of what I did was learn how to program PLCs, which are programming logic controllers that are in the field. And they bring in the sensor data. And you do very rudimentary logic inside the PLC. And then you can send the data out by a cell phone network or whatever else that you want to do. But yeah, so every time I hear the edge and IoT, you know, like, oh, that's really cool way to make it sound important. <laughs> right. But it's just this little device that measures something and sends a little tiny piece of data 
over the cheapest available wireless spectrum. See, and then so. they say, oh, we deployed it on the edge. And yeah. I was like, man, back in the day, we just didn't have fancy words like that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, same thing with AI now. Everything's AI. <laughs> <laughs> what used to be big data and then machine learning, and now it's AI. Yeah, exactly. And who knows when it's going to be. It's yeah. going to be called quantum physics later. Absolutely. And it should be. I'm a big quantum nerd. So if we go down that rabbit hole, it will be here for hours. But yeah, I can get this right. So businesses essentially are able to measure millions of different data points of all types of things in some kind of meaningful pattern of time, you know, in every second, every real time, every hour, whatever it is based on certain industry parameters. I suppose if you're I don't know, filling Coke bottles or something you care about every bottle. But if you're doing manufacturing of a giant piece of machinery, you probably don't need up to the moment actual perfect data of every single right. stroke of the machine. So all this data comes together. I imagine it's aggregated somewhere in some type of cloud. And yay, now we have lots of data. And how do we get smarter using it? And I think that's probably the big challenge. Yeah, that is a challenge. Tech has evolved so much. So now before storage used to be a barrier, running computations used to be a barrier. Like you can't run that many computations on the edge. And I've seen a lot of applications that say, oh, you know, you can on the edge. You're still always going to be limited to what you have on the edge unless you're going to put this big supercomputer in the field, which no one is going to do. So that makes running all that in the cloud a lot easier and a lot less expensive. So back then we used to have big servers and then the servers would get too full and we'd have to upgrade the servers or like uh, delete data. Essentially. But today the cloud has simplified a lot of that and anyone can store massive amounts of data and now you can run massive amounts of computations. The detail is in how you connect the right data sets to run those computations and how you connect those computations to an actual impact on cash flow. And that's where the magic happens. And the chief operating officer role, if you look in history, it's actually a very newer role. And you're typically technical folks that are trying to do this manually. They rise up in those positions and they're responsible for operating cash flow on a daily basis. That's your KPI. Yeah, and it's a lot more impactful in heavy industrials where your pricing changes every day. Just imagine you make oil every day and suddenly tomorrow, how much they're going to buy it changes. Sure. So like the cost controls, if you didn't have real-time data would be incredible. Like essentially don't run a thing that loses you money, but the data changes all the time on doing Analyzing that, that real-time data. So real-time data yeah, is not available right. for a long time. 50 years ago, right. uh, you can see a pressure change, but what's the impact? Does it have an impact? Because because it went from zero to 50 PSI, some have zero impact on production. Some have a lot of impact, right? And so it's how you connect those trends and the patterns and how you utilize all these little amazing tools that you have today and drive an impact. So that's what we do. And did you have to figure out how to put together that data since that essentially didn't exist in the past? The inability to have the compute meant that you really wouldn't even be thinking about processing all this 
fast enough. Is there actually like a bunch of mathematical, essentially models first that you kind of go like, well, does it even matter? I don't know. Does it matter? Like how did, is it just the question of just smashing massive amounts of data and seeing back testing that data to see, did it matter? I don't know. I'm just amazed by this because I don't work in anything like it. No, actually there's engineering models that have been around again for 50 years. So for example, you can look at the potential of an asset and the difference was they were large, heavy simulation models, but now you can feed it with real-time data and you can predict what that potential really is and how long it's going to last. Yes, so these engineering models are not new. There's a lot of engineering equations. That's the first part that you build in instantaneously. And then you can do a root cause, for example, simple example was how we increased cash flow by 7% for in the heavy industrial space just by using pattern matching and OCR. Because they were manually reconciling what inventory left. They had two different systems. So they had real-time data. And then they had another system that warehoused this data. But a person still had to manually reconcile that cash. And if you, there were two things. You're either big enough where you do it manually. You hire people to do it, thousands of man hours. Or you're small enough, you don't. And you just trust the payments you get to be accurate. <laughs> that never went wrong. Yeah. It's actually fun. And that's a very simple solution. And every time we deploy it, we'll find 3% additional cash because, you know, we'll, we use OCR to match the ticket numbers to the tank level drops, which has a very specific signature. Anyways, it's always fun when a CEO sees that. Yeah. And you're talking about industries where there is not a tremendous operating cash margin. So 3% might sound like, eh, whatever, but we're not talking about SaaS margins here. We're talking about an efficient market essentially for a commodity. So. And you didn't have to make anymore. See, the burden wasn't on making more product or being more efficient. Right. Just on getting paid. Right. So where did this come from? Because you decided to make a SaaS company after being in heavy industry and oil and gas yourself. So I always like to know how, to, how did you become a founder out of engineering land? Because it's not always the path people take. Mm -hmm. I guess you could say I was always a little ambitious. And in my career at Marathon Oil, which is one of the uh, top 500s. And as a young engineer, I was one of many people, many technical folks. And I was always, I, I only did the execution part. I didn't really get to. So anyways, my job was to get real-time data, install sensors, and manage PLC programming, and get the data into our headquarters, right? What I noticed was it never got used for efficiency. It's always like a simple example is a tank level in an oil tank, right? It was mostly used for, oh, is the tank going to overflow? I need an alarm and I need someone bit there. But really a tank level tells you how much cash you have on hand, what was sold or how much oil left, et cetera. So it could be used multiple different ways. I went to a smaller company. So I thought Marathon Oil could do more with the real-time data, right? And especially that we had chemical engineers in-house and they were doing a lot of the process optimizations by hand. I just thought if you could actually normalize a lot of this real-time data, you could be doing it on the fly. Anyways, I'll go to a smaller company because I'm excited and I get to manage more stuff, right? 
And to give you an idea, Marathon makes 400,000 barrels of oil a day. And here's this little tiny company that makes 10,000 barrels a day. I go there. It, this is 2011. And they're manually measuring a tank. And I was like, why would you do that? I remember talking to the CEO, like, why would we do this? We're selling 5,000 barrels a day. And I told him how I guarantee him he was losing 3% because there's no validation of a human person writing that down, right? There's no, you can't go to a court of law and say, oh, you know, I'm sure they took X amount of oil. He said, well, let's do a test and we'll try it out. It was 7% that he was actually losing. And of course, all of that, and then we got to deploy sensors everywhere. And I got to deploy wireless technology, which was actually a tenth of the cost compared to what I was doing. And then after that, I, I, the cloud was coming out. I thought, we should do this as a business. And we got our first client and for $40,000. The rest was history. <laughs> My first big client was 40000 too. That must be a magic number. So right about exactly that time, too. So I'm tracking. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, I love the founder stories. So literally what's happening here? Like you're working at this other job and you're like, okay, I found a problem that everybody's going to have. I think I can fix this, but what's the, okay. Like you met with your co-founder, like at the kitchen table or how many months is the planning and should we do this? Should we not do this? Those stories always get compressed. And I, I love to dig into those early days. Did you ever think like, well, yeah, we should do it, but this might be crazy. And what if this cloud thing is new? And what was actually going on there? Robert Estelle, I had met him. He was the vice president at Marathon Oil at that time. And when I had moved to the smaller company, he had moved on to be the CEO of an aimlessed company in London. And he was visiting Houston because uh, he has a home here. And I met him. And I said, hey, we should do this. There's a lot of small companies in the United States. And not to give a lesson, but there's 5,000 small producers in the United States that contribute to 65% of the oil made in the country. And the big majors actually are responsible for about 35 to 40%. I know but a lot of folks don't know that. <laughs> anyway, so I said, there's a lot of businesses. There's 5,000 folks like this company. And I fixed this one. We should go. Check it out. And he looked at me and he said, Sarah, you've got four months to go find a client, if that is true. And I said, okay. And yeah, four months in, found a client. I convinced somebody to buy. And yeah. And looking back, I think I always thought getting the sale was the hardest part, but it's really implementation on a small budget with really hard because now you're trying to make margins and you've got to compete in the marketplace. Yeah. So all that was interesting. Were there other competitors in the space who were already somewhat entrenched or was it really like blazing a new trail? Nobody knew like it was category defining kind of thing. Good, great question. So we started just by doing real-time data and mm -hmm. yes, it is a, a little bit of a crowded space. You've got Schneider Electric, you've got GE. They've been doing this for a long time. Our value proposition was we were going to be much cheaper. And our analytics was newer, right? You had to start somewhere. We needed the data to see all the optimizations and cash flow we could do. And what are the common data sets every company is trying to measure? Right? And what can you do it? 
But I knew even back then when we started and we differentiated ourselves by saying we're fixed pricing or analytics doesn't look like the 1990s. It did take off because some of them couldn't afford it. And others that did, it was just very outdated and old. And, you know, we didn't charge per user, we charged per asset. We said unlimited data points. So that helped us differentiate ourselves and create a little bit of a space for us. But I did know it was going to be very crowded. And uh, six years later, that space of real-time data, like now there's a kid in a garage that can do that, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, obviously you had to innovate on like, great, we can get real-time data and we can show a pretty dashboard. Now what? Now we have to make an impact on cash flow. And if we could do that, because we knew how to do that and incorporate the engineering models, but I knew we, and it did work. Like today we manage 20% of the gas for a country and yeah, and we've got a multi-year contract. It's definitely a solution that is accepted in this space. So what surprised you as a founder, good or bad? It's way more difficult than anyone tells you. Or no one quite outlines the, how hard it is, I think, because... Only people that have done it, but the people who are new never listen to the people that have done it. <laughs> I don't know, but they weren't a lot of stories on how... Like, you always hear about the founders that made it, and then the journey is muted. It's not... There isn't a lot of detail on that. And I think... Looking back, I wish someone had said, hey, and then now looking back, I meet a lot more established CEOs and they say, oh, everyone's got those problems. It's the same problems. It's like, why would someone like talk about them? Like hiring the right folks, having a culture. Like I, in the early days, I hired some brilliant folks because we were getting business, but they had the worst attitude. And I remember one particular one or two, it's a small team. So you tolerate it because you think, oh, I need to execute on this business, right? Or without them, I'm going to fail. It's not really true because tolerating a toxic employee, it doesn't matter how brilliant they are, impacts your growth. Because as you expand the team, the other team members see it and they do the same. And I noticed, yeah, and that attitude catches on. Yeah, or the good ones just go, well, this is being tolerated so I can go work someplace up. Right. Because it's just like, I don't want to be in this and nobody is holding that person accountable. So I'm going to go look for a different job. Yes, exactly. Or they get a little lazy and they start to have a terrible attitude as well. Yeah. I think everybody, it's easy for the whole team to act toward the level of the worst thing that's tolerated. Exactly. Exactly. So did you have to learn to put the hammer down a little bit and fire some people or do some discipline? I did. And that was that not a natural disposition for you? Because, you know, like when you come from engineering, like you're just not taught a lot of these management principles that just come from experience. And was that shocking or did it come naturally? Or all of a sudden you're the leader, go. No, we did not come naturally. Okay. And I think the harder part over here was some of them were older than me. So I was the CEO. Right. You have a lot of the other dynamics that are playing out where they do kind of intimidate you. And they're all men, of course. I mean, not that women can't intimidate, but it just so happened. Yeah, that industry isn't famous for diversity. <laughs> well, in the technical field, it's mostly men. At least 
and it's not all men, let me clarify that. This particular group, the two of them, they would let me know on a very regular basis how they were far better than me. I just got lucky. And if I did happen, this whole company was going to crash and burn, right? And during those times, it's hard not to believe it because it's 40 hours a week. I had a good co-founder and we were able to clean that up and he helped me. But he did some of the firings for me. That helped. And then at one time, I remember they had a bet going on for whatever they said. We don't think Sarah's going to fire this person. And if she does, I'll give you a Anyways, and I did fire that guy, but that was hard. <laughs> well, sounds like you were motivated to <laughs> make sure that the bet was won. But in a SaaS business, you know, your cash flow is very tied to productivity of people. You don't have instrumentation. Right. You don't have a lot of other stuff happening. Ah, yes. And yeah. I learned. Was that interesting to find that out? It's like essentially coming from this place where real-time measurement of everything is like, oh no, like how do we measure developers? How do we measure productivity of humans? Was that sort of, that must have been like rudimentary for your engineering brain. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and we don't get taught finances a lot, right? But yeah. it's really finances that drive any business. And cash flow, profitability. And if you can have good operating cash flow coming in to take care of all of your mm -hmm. costs, you're an extremely healthy company. You never have to worry about anything. Right. Yeah. Cheapest financing you can get is revenue. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Anyways, I learned a lot. And that was a tough period. And then cloud starts to develop. People are finally, AI winters a little bit over. We can do things with big data that we couldn't do. Yes before compute catches up with like your ideal position. I imagine then like the innovation curve had to be pretty steep because probably a lot of people were realizing that at the same time. So did you have to really focus on, you know, developing more? I focused on getting customer revenue instead of raising cash in that time. So there were two things I could do. I could either focus on raising money which is also a full-time job. Or I could focus on actually getting the product up and going because we had customers already and we had real-time data coming in. So I took that path and then I cleaned up the team. So while I simultaneously did both, we were finally able to build out these amazing models that I had always envisioned to make an impact on cash flow. That was truly exciting. I think I lost a couple of years because of um, not having the right team and not being able to build it out. But looking back, I'm happy where we are. Like now it's, so everyone, there's a joke in the team. They go, if you want to be Sarah's favorite, you just have to outperform. <laughs> it's very correlated, very linearly correlated to performance. How have you learned to measure essentially human teams like uh, over that period of time because there was even though you can't gather real-time data you can have heuristics that you must have developed over time from that experience what are the things that matter well what's most important to me is my team thinking on behalf of the customer every day they see our customers interact with the product and i'm always looking for the developers so early days developers would say oh you know what 
that's an engineering model. How about the engineering? And I do have a few engineers on staff just to do that. How about they figure that out? This is not our job, right? And I was like, no, no, you guys are like the biggest fortune of our company. Spend most of the money on you guys. You guys have to think and be more proactive. And we made that a performance metric. Like, how do you contribute to the solution? Yes, the first wave of it was kind of built by Robert and myself because, you know, Robert's, he's a C-suite executive and he had worked on multi-billion dollar assets. So yes, the first wave of it was us, but now we need all of you guys to contribute. So those are little things. And then you can measure the efficiency even with the tasks if they try to go above and beyond, et cetera. There are a few different ways that you can look at it. Yeah. Did that ever feel limiting to you to not have like really good data as an engineer and like, and then you're talking about doing sales too, which is talk about things where there's no good data where you're trying to, I do sales, I know this, it's just, I'm trying to gauge who am I talking to and what motivates them and nobody's feeding you anything. You just have, there's a lot of gut checking involved. And was that just like shocking or different or what? Sales is very different. different. And yeah, even today, I love building the product, but I enjoy sales as well. It's most of what I do on a regular basis. No, actually, as an engineer, when we start, when I started, we did a lot of estimations without data. So you can plug in a lot. And especially you have this real-time data coming in. You can uh, use anomaly detection. You can normalize that. And that's a good set of data. And there's a lot of data that goes unused. So typically the real-time data today, 75% day in, day out, just goes straight into the garbage. No one's using it. <laughs> Yeah, so switching to sales. Sales is about 90%. And what was interesting was we did a few partnerships and they were supposed to be these experienced sales folks, right? Like they had 10, 15 years experience and they're supposed to be the best. And they worked at Oracle or wherever, these big companies. And I found myself outperforming them, right? And kind of went, oh my gosh, what's going on? Like I'm learning sales from the ground up zero background, and the sales folks are not giving me any strategies or incentives. They're just more surprised on how I close the sale. So that's like, okay. (laughs) I know. So I had to self-teach myself a little bit, like the ICB, your ideal buyer. My ideal buyer was the chief operating officer. And then the sales team said, you can't reach those guys. So that's a terrible starting point. And I was like, Okay. But then I showed him an example on how I closed a deal on LinkedIn. Like I sent CEO a cold email. And then they were like, what did you send? I said, I'm sorry. Like I took 30 minutes to understand the customer. I looked at your website. I saw where they were operating. And then I sent him a note and I said, hey, X, I noticed you're drilling X number of wells. I'm optimizing wells for customers right around your acreage for higher cash flow. So I think it's worth the chat, right? Or something along those lines. Real personalized data goes a long way. And what someone from that actual background knows is how to talk about it properly. And I bet a lot of the big software selling people would get the door slammed in their face by not knowing the proper 
industry lingo. But then some of them sold into oil and gas. But then they said that yeah, we well, sold to CIOs. I'm like, okay. Exactly. That's a tech sale. Yep. Now you were, you had credibility in the real world. Just the things that you just said to me, I wouldn't have known count the number of wells, count the acreage. This is like the way you talk about things matter. I think it's a huge lesson that actually knowing your stuff ingratiates you with the target customer. If you thought about that ahead of time. And a lot of, I see a lot of founders hire salespeople, just like you said. And it's just like, if you're a practitioner from the space, like you're going to know it better than anybody. And that's worth paying attention to. Yeah. But I was hoping that at least sales folks could bring in the leads and then I could do it from the second meeting, like sending that cold evening. Everybody hopes that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think in that idea that like we've got to go out and get people to pay attention and just take a meeting even that's the hardest that to me that's the hardest thing in business and i you know i do this for a living now i tend to be on the closer side where i get to do the same meetings as you you know it's like look y'all marketing is important and outbound and whatever we need to do and inbound make meetings happen because i want to take them right. but i think everybody misses that point that i talk to unless you've had that business experience like that's a really hard thing to do to get anybody particularly now the noise is so high it maybe wasn't five five six years ago but there's just a lot you can't reach out to somebody on linkedin now nobody even reads it so <laughs> but i always felt like even going back to everybody if i think folks just sat down and thought a little bit more about instead of just doing canned things or like the strategies are there. That's how I figured it out because I actually read a YouTube, the sales guy, and he said how he customizes each outreach. Yeah. He takes personalization. And something I didn't know about. Yes, it takes time. I'm lazy like everybody else. I don't want to do stuff. It's adapting what was been proven to. You must have had the logical approach of saying, look, somebody does this. Therefore, I need to find how and i need to practice and i need to learn and that's exactly how it happens with people that aren't used to getting paid by somebody else to just do only their part and i think as entrepreneurs very often we're just all all that at the same time somebody that's how i got into sales like oh somebody needs to sell this because nobody else is <laughs> let's go yeah and business is hard right like your customers want to pay you as less as possible and they want to get the most that they can. And how are you going to compete and fit the business model? And so those are all things I think sometimes as a founder, I wish someone told me that nothing's free. You know, like I've had customers beat me down on pricing quite a bit until we. Frictional cost of everything, you know, no matter what should be easy, there's some kind of friction that slows it down and makes it more expensive or slower. And yeah. did you have any sense of at the beginning, hey, this really works. And if we go to market, we'll certainly grow this much. It's not even like this much. I, I found that it's, it's usually the time scale that, that shifts. Like I, oh, I was right about that. It just took four times as long. So. <laughs> well, I think I fell into this common perception because, you know, as a founder, we're very proud of what we built. Right. And we just think, oh, if we put the product out there, they're just going to come flocking to you. The field of dreams. Yeah, yep. no, it yeah. doesn't work that way. They'll all call their friends and tell them for Yeah, me. exactly. 
that's when you realize you've got to tell the customer you're there seven times before they even pay attention to you. God, thank you for going down memory lane with me. I think these conversations are important yeah, I think. because the future founders need to hear this stuff. It's the real grittiness of, you always hear startups are hard, but you maybe don't hear why. And I think that's always interesting to me. And I've done 16 different companies and some of them were really bad. And I try to be honest about that story. That's good. <laughs> so. That's good. More people need to hear it. And I run into founders that have closed their companies, right? And they tell you why. And as a founder myself, I was in those situations. I just chose not to give up because I felt like I had put so much in already. And I was like, I can't lose all that work I put in. Right. And I think preparing yourself to be able to just financially withstand the ups and downs of, of starting up, like if particularly if you're bootstrapping, like you need to get customers need to pay and you're probably the last one to get paid. And therefore from your career or whatever you're doing before, bank that money because yep. like that's capital also, because what you don't pay yourself is a hidden cost exactly. because you can't replace yourself. Exactly. Right? And so when you're working for free, a lot of people don't accrue that and think about it. Like sweat equity is real <laughs> and it's sweat. And there's probably some other names that you could give to it. It's like, wow, like I can't pay my home bills with some, I'm owning, I'm creating future value, which is super cool. But if I can't backstop exactly. not having to have income, that's really critically important. Exactly. And, and yeah, and that's one of the unseen blind spots that you're not looking at. And then I haven't talked to too many investors, but the few that I did, I think we had a limited where they came to us, but see their expectation is, is right. very different, right? They Yeah. And if you can, it's rare to bootstrap a SaaS because it's expensive and like the upfront cost is tremendous. And everybody should know that when you take BC, you have to grow at an extraordinary rate to make good on the valuation. And that itself has an expense to it. And I hear founders talk about all the time. I took too much. I took too early. I wish that I had raised differently. I just didn't know otherwise. Or get in with the right VC. And yeah, because there's so many intangibles that they value you on. And it's not based on, it's actually some of it is not based on how many customers you have and your revenue. It's based on what their perception of me is and my management. And there's a number around that. And it's just, yeah, it's just different. It's, the world of business is a very different world. It's not ones and zeros like I think in engineering. Yeah, I think those are good lessons for the engineering founders that, you know, and, and find partners who know the business side and find partners who know the technology side. And it's a lot easier to start businesses with quality people as your partners who can cover the bases with you. So well done on that one too. Yeah, thank you. Before we run out, and Sarah, thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a fun talk. I told you, I like to ask all my guests, okay, you're the leader of a B2B company. And from your perspective, what's on your radar, so to speak, like what's going to matter you know, to everybody over the next couple of years that just everybody in the audience should just take a moment and think and put that on their list. So I think there is so much buzz about AI and ML. Mm. I think what's going to get very clear in the future is how does that actually help the business? 
Like, it's great to have a very complex, fun, smart neural network that you can hold like a four hour of webinar on. But what's the actual impact of it? Why should I care? And I think that's going to surface out really quick. Because today you have a lot of brands that say, look at all those fancy things we do, which is great. But I think businesses are going to ask, how's that impact me? But the numbers are great. 75% of B2B businesses plan on adopting AI in some form or fashion in the next few years. And you can understand why everybody's rushing to sell it. But I think, yeah, we don't need 25,000 AI point solutions to do what? And I think what I see happen to markets, and I'm, I'd like to pay attention to it, I think you totally nailed it in your businesses. I don't think anybody cares very much about anything except making more money. And I think that it's a lot easier to talk about the further up you are in the income statement, your, your value prop is, the better off you are. Right. And from a selling standpoint. And so I always try to think of if my selling proposition can't talk about revenue or gross margin, it's 10 times harder to sell it for something that reduces expenses or drives greater profit because like you're just, it's a much smaller gain. Revenue goes, can go up forever. Yes. Costs can only go down a reasonable amount. And I think that's the difference between buying a high growth stock versus a short <laughs> something like that. So. Stay <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah, so much. It's been fun. Thank I really you. appreciate your insights. I don't know if anybody out there is in heavy industry, but they should pay attention to you and your business mm -hmm. if they are. Anybody who resonated just about anything you said, what's what are the best channels to reach out to you if uh, people want to do that? So I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm very social there. And yeah, send me a note there or send me a note to my email address. We're still small enough where I still respond to a lot of relevant emails. <laughs> but I enjoyed this so much and I enjoyed your perception and I loved the little tidbits I heard about your background on sales and uh, that was really cool. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming out and being a part of this. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.